Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absite podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose a partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Hey everyone, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, today we're covering the topic on breast. Uh, we cover everything from cancer to infections in this episode, uh, so it should be really good and high yield information for you. All right, let's jump right into our breast absite review. Uh, this is, uh, we've got a lot of requests to do breasts, and this is a very, very high yield topic. So let's go through it. Um, so let's start with some high yield anatomy. So, woo. Uh, something that's asked often is the axillary nodal basins. There's three levels level one, two, and three. What are the three levels of the axillary nodes? Level one is lateral to the pec minor, level two is underneath the pec minor. And level three is medial to the pec minor. So again, all in relationship to the pectoralis minor muscle. Yep. Lateral to medial. So level one is the most lateral. Level two is under the pec. And then high up in the axilla, medial to the pec minor is level three. Um, Let's talk about some nerves. Uh, So Kevin, there are some important nerves you need to know surgically, specifically when doing things like an axillary dissection. Uh, So can you walk us through the major nerves you need to know uh, and what what they innervate and then what the deficit is? Yes, this is a 100% chance of getting this on the absite. Uh, so the first nerve uh, that we talk about most commonly, the long thoracic, it, this uh, innervates the serratus anterior, and this will give you a winged scapula. The second one is the intercostal brachial nerve. Uh, this is the cutaneous branch of the second intercostal. Uh, you'll get loss of the sensation to the medial arm. The next nerve is the thoracodorsal nerve. This supplies latissimus dorsi, and you'll have weak arm adduction. The next nerve is the medial pectoral nerve. This is uh, this supplies the pec major and minor. And finally, the lateral pectoral nerve, and this only supplies the pec minor. Yeah, so a, a lot to unpack there, but oh, so it's, woo, which of those is the most common? 
So the most common injury is to the intercostal brachial nerve. Right. Most common nerve injury with axillary dissection is intercostal brachial, which is the cutaneous branch of the second intercostal. You'll get some loss of sensation to the medial arm. Um, again, long thoracic, thoracodorsal, often mixed up. Long thoracic, serratus anterior, your wing scapula, uh, thoracodorsal, latissimus dorsi, and that's weak arm adduction, adduction. Um, and then they often ask what, uh, they like to trip you up with the lateral and medial pectoral nerve, which innervates both the major and minor, which only does the minor. The medial pectoral nerve, it starts with an M, capital M. It's major and minor, uh, whereas the lateral is a pec minor. Okay, how about, uh, uh, Kevin, keep going. How about the uh, blood supply to the breast? So the blood supply, you have the uh, internal mammary, uh, the intercostals, the thoracoacromial artery, and the lateral thoracic artery. Okay. Woo. Um, so a lot of times what we'll see is um, they'll give you the BIRADS classification for breast mammography or breast imaging. Um, we have, uh, can you walk us through what the different BIRADS are and what the question will be is what does this patient need? So um, whether they need a biopsy, whether they need further imaging, whether they need nothing. So BIRADS one through five, walk us through what that means and what the recommendation is. Yeah, so actually, uh, there is a potential that you could also see a BIRAD 0 and a BIRAD 6. Just be aware of that. Uh, 0 being there's not enough information, and 6 being a confirmed diagnosis of malignancy. Good. Uh, however, in the in most of the questions, you'll, you're most likely to see 1 through 5. And the key is to know what to do next with that classification. So if you see 1 or 2, the next step is going to be just routine screening. You don't change your management. Uh, for BIRADS 3, though, you decrease the screening interval to uh, six months repeat imaging. Uh, and for BIRADS 4 and 5, you have to biopsy and get a further tissue analysis. Right. Again, 1 and 2, 1 being normal, 2 being uh, a benign lesion, routine screening is all those patients need. For BIRADS 3, repeat imaging in six months, 4 and 5 need a biopsy. Perfect. Uh, so something that is often referred uh, to clinic and uh, you may see is nipple discharge. Kevin, tell us a little bit about nipple discharge and how you want to manage that. Right. So very common, uh, but cancer is rarely associated with it. Uh, uh, about 3% of patients with nipple discharge will uh, later be diagnosed with cancer. That is if they're under 40 years old. However, a patient that is older uh, presents in the sixth decade of life or older and they have nipple discharge, you need to have a much higher suspicion. Uh, they will ha they have up to a third, uh, 33% chance of having cancer associated with their nipple discharge. And what are some uh, characteristics uh, of the discharge itself that would put you in a statistically higher risk of uh, malignant pathology? Definitely. So bloody discharge, spontaneous discharge, uh, persistent discharge doesn't get better after a week on of just observing, uh, unilateral discharge. All of these are statistically higher risk for malignant pathology. Okay. And what are some, what can you do to, from there? Let's say you have one of those characteristics. What should be the next steps? So you always want to start with imaging. You want to have mammography because um, that can help identify uh, any intrabreast lesions, but then it's specifically for the duct, you can do, you can check the ductal fluid cytology. You can do ductography and ductoscopy um, and diagnosis, but these aren't that helpful. So many times you end up doing a duct excision. Uh, this provides the best means of diagnosis of the underlying pathology. Yeah, exactly. So there's, you'll see those things out there, the cytology, ductography, uh, ductoscopy, um, but really those are minimally useful. So for, if you have those concerning, you know, bloody discharge, spontaneous discharge, unilateral discharge, most likely uh, those patients go in for a duct excision uh, to diagnose the underlying pathology. 
Um, and still, the majority of these are benign, but what's the most common cause of a bloody nipple discharge? That would be an introductal papilloma. Great. Okay, so next, let's move on to some breast lesions. So let's talk first about uh, fibroadenoma and phyloides tumor. So, Wu, uh, how, do, how do these present? Yeah, so both these generally tend to present with a dominant mass. Uh, and so with any dominant mass, if you have a, a younger patient, so let's less than 35 years of age, you're going to want to do uh, an ultrasound. And if they're over 35, uh, you're going to also do a mammography. Um, if the findings of this are consistent with the benign fibroadenoma and the patient has no risk factors, then it's okay to watch with biannual ultrasound, so every six months. Uh, if there's any uncertainty, though, you really need to do a core needle biopsy. And some people would actually argue that any dominant mass needs a core needle biopsy. Yeah, that's a common presentation. You know, a woman is referred with with a lump in her breast or finds one on self-exam. Uh, a lot of times the question is what to do next. And you want to look at the patient's age. So less than 35 will get an ultrasound. Greater than 35 uh, need mammography. And, and why, why is mammography not great on young women, Wu? So generally, young women tend to have dense breast tissue, and because of that, mammography uh, is less sensitive. Yeah. Um, I think most of these, like, if if it's very clinically consistent with a benign fibroadenoma and all the imaging kind of matches up, um, and the woman has absolutely no risk factors, then, like you say, it is okay to watch that um, if they're under 35. Um, I think a large majority of these are probably going to get some form of biopsy, and that's okay, too, especially if, if the person doesn't is anxious about it, doesn't want to live with it, that type of thing. Um, how about if it's a cyst? What do you want to do with a cyst if you see that on your ultrasound? Uh, then you want to see if that ultrasound aspiration was bloody or if it happens to be recurrent. If those are the case, then you want to send for cytology. Okay. Uh, and tell me about uh, phyloides tumor. Um, let's say you get a biopsy or you know it comes back as phyloides tumor. How do you want to treat that? Yeah, so if you see phyloides tumor, you just got to remember that a phyloides tumor does have malignant potential. And so you're going to do a wide local excision with one centimeter margins. The malignancy rate is actually higher if they have a greater than five mitoses per high power field. And phyloides tumor rarely does have hematogenous metastases. Uh, it does not generally go to the nodes. So you don't need to do a sentinel node or axe dissection. Yeah, I tend to think of these more like behaving kind of like a sarcoma. Uh, so wide local excision, uh, generally one centimeter margins. Uh, if they do spread, which is rare, it's rare for them to metastasize. If they do, it spreads uh, um, in the blood and does not go to nodes. So you do not need an axillary section with these. Um, okay, uh, Kevin, talk to me about something we hear a lot about, and for some reason it confused me for a long time, but a radial scar. What is a radial scar, and, and how, do you, how do you manage that? Right. So uh, very common. Uh, you'll see another name for this is sclerosing papillary proliferations or benign sclerosing ductal proliferation. So don't let those names confuse you. Uh, they're all uh, another name for radial scar. Uh, so the mam mammographic appearance can be uh, concerning because it can have calcifications and look like a small invasive cancer. Um, but they only have a small increased risk of cancer if the patient does have a radial scar. Um, if you do diagnose a radial scar, you do need to do a biopsy to rule out invasive cancer. 
Yeah, and a lot of times that's a question that they'll ask too. Is they'll give you a, a list of lesions and they'll say which of these, you know, requires a biopsy, which of these don't. Um, and we'll go into that. Uh, some other lesions that definitely need biopsy, but radial scar is definitely one of those that has malignant potential and will need uh, will need biopsy. Um, next, let's just cover real quick. Uh, we're talking about breast lesions, breast abscesses. There's not a whole lot to talk about as abscesses anywhere in the body. The treatment is drainage. Um, Kevin, what's the most common organism with the breast abscess? So these will generally be gram positive, uh, and staph aureus is the most common. Okay, perfect. Okay. With that, let's jump right into the meat of things. So we're going to dive right into breast cancer. It's a big topic, um, but it's certainly one of those things every general surgeon needs to know something that's heavily tested and something that's constantly changing. So it's hard to keep up with. Uh, so, Wu, uh, let's talk first about some risk factors. First off, let's let's go over some of the hereditary disorders that increase a woman's risk for breast cancer. Um, can you name off some hereditary disorders that increase breast cancer risk? Yeah, so there's BRCA1 and 2. There's Lee-Fermeni, and that's a P53 mutation. There's uh, Cowden syndrome, which is a P10 mutation. Uh, there's Puchagers, which is a STK11 mutation. And there's also a CDH1 uh, which is associated with gastric cancer. Yep, gastric cancer and breast cancer, CDH1. That's one of the newer ones that I've seen pop-ups, um, you know, several times in, in a test or practice test type situation. Uh, but the big ones, obviously, are BRCA1, BRCA2. What, how much does that increase a woman's risk of breast cancer, Kevin? So it's a 10 to 20-fold increased risk of breast cancer. So they have a 30 to 60% chance of having breast cancer by the age of 60. Yep. So those are your big ones. Those are the big ones they like to ask. Um, when, it, when we talk about other risk factors for breast cancer, there's there's uh, several different models out there. Probably the most known one um, is the Gale model, um, and that's the one that's likely uh, to be asked. Uh, so what is the Gale model and what goes into it, Kevin? So this calculates a woman's risk of developing breast cancer within the next five years and within her lifetime. The components of this are age, age at menarche, age at the time of the first child that was born, family history of breast cancer, specifically mother, sister, daughter, uh, number of past breast biopsies, number of breast biopsies showing atypical hyperplasia, the race and ethnicity, and that completes the... Uh, yeah, so those are just good. You don't really necessarily have to memorize. It's you know, it's a probability score that that it comes up that gives you a percentage. It can be useful in you know counseling patients at what the risk for breast cancer is when they're trying to decide you know what surgical procedure, whether or not they want to undergo surgery, those type of things. Um, and those are all things that I kind of think about when I'm seeing a breast cancer patient. Things I need to ask. Things I need to that needs to be in the history and physical. Um, obviously, you're not sitting there calculating the person's you know, Gale model score and your head. Uh, but knowing it will help you remember what the risk factors for breast cancer are. What's important to know is the Gale model underestimates the risk for patients who have a personal history of, of cancer um, or DCIS, LCIS, as well as anybody with a strong family history or a bracket gene. Um, it underestimates risk for those patients. So it's not good for uh, patients with those types of histories. Um, so we will, let's move on. Let's start talking about the management of different uh, kinds of carcinomas, carcinoma in situs. So DCIS, um, how do you want to treat that? Yeah, so DCIS is a pre-malignant lesion. Uh, the treatment for it would be lumpectomy with radiation, as well as hormonal therapy if they are uh, hormone receptor positive. Okay, what if what if the woman's, uh, they say the woman's postmenopausal? Yeah, so in that case, instead of using tamoxifen, like for a premenopausal woman, you would use an aromatase inhibitor. 
Great. So breast conservation therapy, which is lumpectomy with uh, uh, with radiation therapy, as well as hormone receptor therapy if they're ERPR positive, and that's tamoxifen. That's typically for five years. If a woman's postmenopausal, uh, you go to your aromatase inhibitors. Um, are there any patients where um, mastectomy is an option? Yeah, so you might consider mastectomy if the patient has a large lesion, has multi-quadrant disease, uh, or has any contraindication to uh, post-op radiation. Uh, so when you're doing a mastectomy, the big thing, though, is you, are, you want to consider a sentinel lymph node biopsy if performing the mastectomy for DCIS is up to 25% of DCIS. Uh, may show an invasive component on the final pathology. Right, and that's how it's going to show up, is that it's it's a patient that's going to undergo a mastectomy for a DCIS. Normally, you would not have to evaluate the lymph nodes with DCIS, but if you're doing a mastectomy, uh, you kind of, and then that gets upstaged to an invasive c- cancer, you've kind of composed yourself for that central lymph node. Um, you've disrupt, disrupted all lymphatic channels. So if you're doing a mastectomy for DCIS, for any of those reasons you mentioned, you want to consider doing uh, a central lymph node. Uh, Kevin, what kind of margins do you need for DCIS? So... The general understanding I have for margins of DCIS is you actually need a two millimeter margin. Uh, The reason that this differs from invasive ductal cancer versus uh, DCIS is because invasive ductal cancer, you just need a negative ink at the tumor specimen. But for DCIS, it spreads along the basement membrane and so can be kind of contiguous. And that so you need a larger margin to confirm that there is no further DCIS spreading along that basement membrane. So I would go with two millimeter margins. Yeah, this is one of those areas that's kind of controversial. Um, so it's probably unlikely to show up on the outside. The, the official, the NCCN guidelines say you need at least a one millimeter margin. Uh, but like you say, the margins for, funny enough, the margins for DCIS are a little bit more controversial than the margins for invasive cancer. Um, how about, uh, how do you counsel your patients for post-op breast radiation? What's survival of mastectomy versus breast conservation? What does adding radiation to breast conservation do for the patient? So it's very important uh, to have this discussion because it's a, it's a big difference. Post-op whole breast radiation after a lumpectomy for DCIS will decrease the risk of recurrence by 50%, uh, though in the long-term studies has not shown an impact on overall survival. Right. And when you're counseling, you, you want to say, you know, you want to tell a mastectomy versus breast conservation has equal survival rates. There is an increased risk of recurrence with breast conservation, but the overall survival is the same. Adding radiation, like you say, reduces that um, risk of recurrence by 50%, but does not affect the overall survival. Uh, woo, okay. So LCIS, how's LCIS different than DCIS? Yeah, so LCIS is not a pre-malignant lesion, uh, and it marks increased risk of cancer development in both breasts. Right. So this is not a pre-malignant condition, but it does increase the risk of cancer in both breasts. And this is one of those things, if it comes back in core needle biopsy, you need an excisional biopsy. So, so far, we've, go under, under, uh, we've um, gone over radial scar, DCIS, LCIS. Those are all things, if you get those back on your core needle, you need to do an excisional biopsy. Um, what's the treatment for LCIS? So this is somewhat controversial, uh, but generally, you're going to want to do a wire localized excision. Uh, to rule out an invasive component or DCIS. Okay, so let's say you do that. You do your wire localized excision, and the, you're at tumor board, and the pathology comes back with you have a positive more part, no invasive component, no DCIS, but you have a positive margin on your LCIS. Um, what, how do you want to manage that patient? At that point, you're surgically complete. You're surgically, yeah, you're surgically complete. You don't need uh, in the in the you're surgically complete in the in the sense that you don't need negative margins. But then, how, what do you want to counsel that patient for the risk of breast cancer and uh, what the next steps are? 
Right. So the patient is at risk of developing bilateral uh, lesions, and this would generally be a ductal cancer. Yes, exactly. And and uh, Kevin, do you know what that risk is? So yeah, LCIS puts patients at a at a higher risk of cancer over their lifetime. I think they say it's a half percent per year uh, increased risk. So if you you know for tw- the next twenty years, you'd have a ten percent increased risk of breast cancer. Right. So that's not insignificant. So those patients are at a half percent per year risk of developing an invasive cancer. So that's when you have to get into the discussions of prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, and, and really that's an individualized discussion with the patient. Um, okay, so but I think it's important to talk about um, hormonal therapy for these patients. Uh, you know, many of these patients will benefit uh, from hormonal therapy to reduce their risks. Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the receptor status of their lesion, um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, that's an that's also an area of uh, ongoing research um, is the hormonal therapy for for these uh, carcinoma in situs so, and LCIS. So my answer on the ab site would be no further surgery, but you know, send the patient for consideration for hormonal therapy. Yeah, I think that would be safe. Uh, okay, moving right into invasive uh, breast cancer. Um, so let's go through. This is one of those ones uh, where you have to know the staging. So there's lots of nuances and substages. Um, but Ke- Kevin, how do you want to just break down the TNM? What's well, a good way of breaking it down, thinking about it for the abside? Yeah. So a must know, unfortunately, T1, zero to two centimeters. T2, two to five centimeters. T3, greater than five centimeters. And then if it is invading the chest wall or skin involvement, you now have a T4 tumor. Great. Zero to two, two to five, greater than five, and then invasion in the chest wall or skin. Now, how about if it invades into the pec major muscle? Is that considered chest wall invasion? No, it's not. All right. What about your nodal staging? So yeah, for the nodal staging, one to three nodes is in one, uh, four to nine nodes is in two. And then if there's 10 or more nodes, um, or supra or infraclavicular nodes, you have an N3 disease. Okay. And, uh, your M staging is always my favorite. Your favorite, uh, distal Mets is M1. Okay. So we have that now, uh, Wu, how do you want to break that down? So that's our T and, and that's a good, you know, way of breaking down the T, N and M that I think is not overly complicated and good enough for the boards. How about the staging? Yes, stage one. So think of a small tumor that has no notes. So a T1, N0, M0. For stage two, think of a larger tumor or having minor nodal involvement. So T3, N0 or T2, N1. Again, N1 being one to three nodes. So for stage three, this is broken up into 3A, 3B, and 3C. For 3A and 3B, there's local invasion or more nodes. So think of your T4, N0 or your T3, N2. And uniquely, there's a stage 3C, and for that, think of any clavicular nodes. So for this, you can have any T stage, but it's going to be N3 disease. And stage 4 would be any distant metastasis. Yeah, this is unfortunately one of those ones where it's kind of getting in the weeds there, the 3A, 3BC, but as you'll see here in a minute, that does make some real management decisions. So anytime there's a distinction that that is a branch point for management, you need to know it. So we need to know that 3A, 3B, 3C, unfortunately, when it comes into guiding our treatment. Um, okay, so treatment. So Kevin, how about your early stages, um, stages stage one and two? So stage one and two breast cancer, so to review, that would be small tumors with no nodes or larger tumors uh, with minor node involvement. Uh, For these patients, you can generally do surgery first, followed by adjuvant chemo and RADS if it's indicated. 
So primarily, uh, we are doing breast conservation therapy now. So for a small tumor, the patient can undergo a lumpectomy and whole breast radiation, uh, which would be considered equivalent to a mastectomy. Yep. So a survival, a survival equivalent to mastectomy. So early stage, one, two, surgery first, uh, generally lumpectomy, whole breast radiation. And then you, you add on, depending on your findings, you'll have adjuvant chemo, adjuvant uh, hormone therapy. Uh, what are some uh, uh, contraindications to the, going with the breast, breast conservation route? So all patients that have breast conservation therapy are going to require uh, radiation uh, after. So any patient that is not a candidate for radiation cannot undergo breast conservation therapy. So patients that are pregnant and would require radiation during their pregnancy would be an absolute contraindication. If they have multicentric disease, uh, this would be a contraindication and then uh, positive pathologic margins after re-excision would be a contraindication to breast conservation therapy. Uh, then there's some more relative risks to, uh, I'm sorry, relative contraindications to breast conservation therapy. And this would be a patient that's had previous radiation because now they're not a candidate for further radiation. Or if they have any active connective tissue diseases such as scleroderma. Uh, and then if the tumor is greater than five centimeters, uh, they would fall outside of being able to undergo breast conservation therapy. Yeah, I think the big ones are, I mean, there's an important caveat there. Obviously, not all pregnant patients. It's just pregnant patients that would require radiation during the pregnancy. So those early trimester pregnancies. Most common ones you're going to see are that multicentric disease um, or, you know, patients, if they have a positive margin on the first excision and they have a re-excision, they still have positive margins. Those patients are no longer candidates for breast conservation therapy. Um, okay. Uh, woo. Let's move on to some more advanced. So let's talk about locally advanced operable tumors. So we're talking about, you know, your stage 3A. So review for, for us, what's stage 3A again? So stage 3A is local invasion or more nodes. So think of your T4 and 0. Uh, again, T4 being involvement of chest wall or skin, and uh, either that or T3 and 2. And T3, again, was greater than 5 centimeters in size, and 2 was uh, 4 to 9 lymph nodes. Okay. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll lump this into that category. It's hard for me to think about, you know, you know, stage 3A, 3B, 3C, but if I think about locally advanced operable tumors, so they're tumors that are resectable, but they're locally advanced, how do you want to manage approach those patients? Yeah. So for these patients, you're going to either do surgery first or think about doing neoadjuvant therapy for downstaging uh, depending on individual patient and tumor factors. Okay, so yeah, these are these are the patients that may fall into that neoadjuvant uh, therapy. Uh, you know, depending on you know maybe the tumor is large and the patient wants to undergo breast conservation therapy. Maybe you can downstage that tumor and make that patient who would would have been a you know a, a mastectomy uh, now a candidate for breast conservation therapy. Um, okay, well, how about? locally advanced inoperable tumors. So these are really your stage 3B, 3C uh, patients. Um, so these are patients who kind of ha have more extensive nodal involvement. Um, uh, how do you want to handle those patients? Yeah, and again, remember that 3C was the clavicular nodes. Uh, so for these patients, locally advanced inoperable tumors, you're going to do neoadjuvant therapy first and uh, down and 
try to downstage that, and it, it, and then you can do surgery if the patient responds to this. Okay. And Kevin, easy one, uh, stage four disease, how, what, how do you manage those patients? Uh, primary chemotherapy. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about ax- surgical axillary staging. So uh, w- this is something that has changed recently. It's certainly changed since my time taking the boards. Um, the answer has changed. So, Kevin, surgical axillary staging, um, how do you want to approach that for invasive carcinomas? So all patients that have invasive tumors need to have a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So sentinel lymph node uh, indicated for all, all invasive tumors. Okay. Um, and we should also say that those are clinically, uh, with whose patients whose axilla are clinically negative, because if they have a clinically positive axilla, what are they getting? They're going to get a modified radical mess. Or they're going to get an axillary dissection of some form or another. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Talk to me about the Z11 trial, because Z11 trial has gotten a lot. Of, we, we had a podcast covering this, uh, and it's, it's so clinically relevant that it will show up on the boards. Um, so what is the, the Z11 trial, and why is it important? So this was comparing patients with small tumors and small uh, amount of axillary disease to whether they need an axillary dissection or whether the radiation can treat their axilla adequately. So this was patients that were greater than 18 and had T1 or T2 tumors, so less than five centimeters, and they had fewer than three positive sentinel lymph nodes, and they underwent breast conservation therapy with whole breast radiation. So what did it show? This was a randomized trial, so some of them what went by our previous treatment, which was if they had a positive sentinel lymph node, they went and got a axillary dissection. The other group of them only had the whole breast radiation, which treats the axilla. And what they found was that there's no difference in local recurrence, disease-free survival, and overall survival at a median follow-up of 6.3 years. Yeah. So this is, this is going to be, this is a big one. So again, this is, because, uh, because an axillary dissection is, is, is a, decently morbid procedure, you know, the question is, can we get away with less? So we looked at sentinel lymph node resection alone versus axillary lymph nodes. And again, women who are over 18, small tumors, T1, T2, and had fewer than three positive uh, nodes on their sentinel lymph nodes. So you have to get three nodes during your sentinel lymph node uh, harvest in order for to, to qualify for this. And those patients um, were undergoing breast conservation therapy where they all got whole breast radiation. Uh, so the way this is going to show up is they're going to give you a woman with a small invasive cancer. It's, you know, it's one to two centimeters. You do your, your lumpectomy in your central node and they'll say, and it's a woman who's 18, no risk factors, that type of thing. Um, one of the nodes come back positive and the question is going to be, what's going to be next? It's going to be, do you do an axillary dissection? Do they get uh, post-operative radiation and hormonal therapy? Uh, plus or minus chemo, depending on the size of the tumor. Um, and uh, they, that's what the, the answer is going to be, is, is is you're okay just con- doing the breast conservation therapy with whole breast radiation uh, for fewer than three positive nodes in those patients. Um, who does need uh, a uh, axillary dissection? So level one and level two axillary dissection is recommended for patients that have clinically positive nodes confirmed by FNA or core needle biopsy or uh, sentinel nodes that were not identified. Yeah, so uh, so clinical positive nodes, um, and generally those will get confirmed with an ultrasound and FNA or a core needle that they are positive. Those patients get an axillary dissection. But let's say you're doing your sentinel lymph node and you, you do your blue ink, you do your radio tracer, and you can't find you can't find any nodes. 
Right. Those are the patients also are uh, need a level one, two axillary dissection. Um, and, I, and I think it's important if they give you a choice of you have a patient that you're evaluating in your clinic and they have palpable nodes. I think you, you're going to choose the answer of you're going to confirm this, that those nodes have cancer in them with an ultrasound and FNA or core needle biopsy. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, these days uh, that is that is the right answer um, if that's an option for you. Um, and one other point I just want to point out is for breast cancer, it's a level one and level two axillary lymph node dissection, and you do not do a level three axillary lymph node dissection. Yeah. Uh, so what is, why are you making that distinction? What, what, how else does that show up on the upside? So they'll give you a melanoma uh, that has a positive sentinel lymph node, and that patient needs levels one, Absolutely. two. Don't choose a level one, two, because they'll give you that as an option, a level one, two dissection for melanoma. They'll need a three-level axillary dissection. Okay, well, we've been talking, you know, breast conservation therapy. We've mentioned a few times, you know, you know, patients, uh, plus or minus chemotherapy for for, for these invasive cancers. Um, but who gets uh, chemotherapy with invasive breast cancer? Yeah, this is a complicated question. Uh, in reality, there's going to be a discussion based on individual risk of relapse, predicted uh, sensitivity to a particular treatment based on oncotyping, all that. But for the site, you're going to give chemotherapy for tumors greater than one centimeter, positive nodes, or triple negative nodes. The one caveat to that is in hormone receptor positive patients that have node negative tumors with favorable oncotype, uh, in those patients, post-op hormonal therapy alone is an option, and you might be able to get away without chemotherapy. Yeah, this question is getting more and more complex as we, as we get into these different oncotyping things. And it's like I said, it's really a, a tumor board discussion, who gets chemotherapy or not. But like you say, for the absite, for the boards, at this point, what I would know is tumors greater than one centimeter, positive nodes, or triple negative tumors all get chemotherapy. Uh, and and we, what do I mean? What do we mean when we say triple ther- or triple negative tumors? ER, PR, HER2 are all negative. Yep, yep. Like those, those are we know those to be typically more aggressive. Uh, they they're not eligible for the the, the adju- adjuvant therapies, the hormonal, the Herceptin, those type of things. And uh, they're generally found in the younger patients, like the eighteen year old breast cancer Absolutely. patient that you started this with. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, chemotherapy, uh, Kevin. What would be like for the boards? What's your regimen? Your chemotherapy regimen? Right. So just stick with TAC T A C. So you have your taxanes your adriamycin, or also called doxorubicin, and cyclophosphamide. Yeah, again, this is a very complex topic that we're not going to get into. For the boards, this is what I would know. This would be my uh, my regimen of choice I would reach to. Uh, something that's commonly tested are the side effects of these different things. So real quick, Kevin, uh, side effects of uh, of a, the taxanes, the doxitaxel? Uh, that would be peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathy for the taxanes, adriamycin, or doxorubicin? Cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy. Um, and uh, cyclophosphamide? Hemorrhagic cystitis. Yep. And what do you give for uh, the hemorrhag- to reduce the risk of hemorrhagic cystitis with cyclophosphamide? Mesna. Mesna. Uh, uh, we covered this a little bit, but who do we think about neoadjuvant therapy for? So neoadjuvant therapy is good for locally advanced or inoperable tumors. So again, your inflammatory, your N2, N3, or your T4 lesions. Uh, or think about neoadjuvant therapy for tumors that are too large relative to the rest of the breast for breast conservation therapy and the patient requ- uh, requests breast conservation therapy. Good. Okay. So we've covered chemotherapy. Let's move on to radiotherapy. Uh, so um, a- again, we've covered it, but what's the benefit of radiation therapy with breast conservation? So whole breast radiation decreases local recurrence and improves survival. 
After lumpectomy, whole breast irradiation with boost to tumor bed is strongly recommended. And do you give uh, your radiotherapy before or after chemotherapy? You give it after the chemotherapy. Okay. And we'll hear sometimes about doing uh, radiation to the the regional nodal basin. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So for women with four or more positive lymph nodes, radiation to the supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary lymph nodes is often recommended. And if the cancer is in the central to inner area of the breast, then radiation also may be recommended to the internal mammary lymph node. Uh, For women who have one to three positive tumors, the role of radiation is more likely to fall into the gray zone and will depend on the individual tumor characteristics. Yeah, that's, again, this is a complex topic. And if you're anybody out there is a radiation oncologist, they're going to eat us alive because this is a very complex topic and it's not this simple. But again, for the boards, for me, what I would know is four or more nodes gets a nodal basin, a boost of radiation to the nodal basin. Um, in reality, again, I know it's way more complicated than that. Um, okay, how about uh, your your patient, your 85, your 90-year-old patient who comes in with a breast cancer? What's the, the role of radiation in, in, in those older patients? So if you have a woman who's age greater than 70 with clinically negative nodes and an ER-positive T1 breast cancer, then you might be able to get away with hormonal therapy, uh, lumpectomy, negative margins, but not have to do uh, radiation. Yeah, and this is out of the NCCN guidelines. Again, this is your you know older patients uh, who undergo lumpectomy have negative margins. They have hormone receptor positive tumors that are small. Um, in those patients, uh, you, you can sometimes get away without radiation and just do lumpectomy with hormonal therapy alone. Um, uh, I, I don't know if that's that's kind of getting in the weeds a little bit. It'd be unusual for something like that to show up on the app site, but it's important to know nonetheless. Um, how about after a mastectomy? Who gets radiation after a mastectomy, Kevin? So for patients who've had a mastectomy, they are recommended to have radiation to the chest wall and regional lymph nodes if they have positive actually lymph nodes, as well as if they have tumors greater than five centimeters or have a positive margin. Yeah, so certainly positive margins greater than five centimeters on the outside, I would answer. Um, they get some radiation to the chest wall and to the um, regional lymph nodes. Um, okay, we talked a little bit about hormonal therapy. Um, who gets uh, Who gets hormonal therapy? All hormone-positive tumors uh, should receive uh, five years of tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor for postmenopausal women. Perfect. Okay. And what about uh, that, that third marker, that HER2? So let's say they're HER2-positive. What's the treatment for that? Uh, Trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin, for one year uh, for HER2-positive tumors. Yep. So again, tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors, the treatment's five years for hormone receptor positive. Uh, Herceptin or trastuzumab uh, for one year for HER2-positive tumors. Um, okay. Uh, moving on a little bit. So how about uh, inflammatory breast cancer? What is that and how do you want to manage it? Yeah. So inflammatory breast cancer is characterized by uh, rapid diffuse involvement of the entire breast with cutaneous erythema and paw derange changes in the breast skin. And this is secondary to dermal lymphatic invasion with cancer cells. So all these are considered T4D tumors and therefore at least stage 3B. Uh, To treat these, start with chemoradiation up front. If the patient responds, then do a modified radical mastectomy. Yeah, so I think this would fall under that locally advanced non-operable tumors initially. So these need neoadjuvant therapy. Chemorads first and then modified radical mastectomy is going to be the answer. Chemorads followed by modified radical mastectomy for inflammatory breast cancer. And this is going to be a picture question, so know what this looks like. Um, Okay, Kevin, uh, Paget's disease of the breast. Uh, What is that and what do you do with it? 
So this is uh, patients that have eczematous changes with scaling and ulceration of the skin and nipple. Uh, this is a marker of underlying malignancies. These cancers are generally hormone receptor negative and HER2 positive. Uh, characteristically, the cells will have a clear cytoplasm and enlarged nuclei. So uh, this will be on the test, a patient that comes in with uh, some scaly ulcerating skin changes to the nipple, and they're going to ask you what you should do. This, sh- this should raise alarms, and you should uh, be aggressive with the workup of this. And how do you want to treat? So if it qualifies for uh, breast conservation therapy based on what we discussed, uh, they can undergo breast conservation therapy. However, mastectomy, including uh, the nipple areolar complex plus a sentinel lymph node biopsy is probably the safest answer. Right. And I'd make sure you know how this, this is another one that's, that could possibly be a picture question. So know, make sure you know the difference between you know, patch disease and inflammatory breast cancer, how those appear. Um, and for these, yeah, uh, I think mastectomy with the nipple areolar complex and the sentinel lymph node uh, is the is the safest answer uh, for the boards. Um, okay, Wu, uh, not seen often, but breast cancer in men, what do you want to think about? Yeah, so this is very rare, less than 1% of breast cancer. Uh, Risk factors include a strong family history, Klinefelter's disease, and BRCA2 mutation. Uh, That accounts for 15% of breast cancer in men. Yeah, and once you once you diagnose this, like I said, it's rare. It, it's it's treated like it's treated similar to breast cancer in women. Um, okay, we talked briefly about this uh, a little bit before, but breast cancer in pregnancy, uh, Kevin. How do you manage breast cancer during pregnancy? Right. So first trimester, the patient is going to get a modified radical mastectomy, and why is that? Uh, because they cannot undergo uh, post-op radiation. Yeah, the radiation and really that early, the, the chemotherapy as well um, uh, is, is problematic. Okay, so let's talk about second and third trimester. So if this is a late second and, uh, or third trimester, breast conservation can be used. Uh, the sentinel lymph node with a modified isotope dosing and then post-op chemotherapy and post-delivery breast radiation. Yep. So first trimester, modified radical mastectomy, late second, third trimester, you can do breast conservation therapy. Uh, you, you do the you can do a sentinel lymph node. You have to use a modified isotope. Um, the chemotherapy can be given during late second and third uh, trimester, and then after delivery, they'll undergo the radiation therapy. And this is, you know, contrary to what you think, you do use the radioisotope for the sentinel lymph node, and you do not use methylene blue. Methylene blue is contraindicated in, in pregnant patients. Absolutely. So, uh, the, yeah, it's a little counterintuitive, but methylene blue, no, in pregnancy. Uh, the radio tracer is okay with the modified isotope dosing. Okay, so that's a quick down and dirty review of breast disease uh, for the ab site. Um, that should help you out, get you a lot of points, hopefully. So let's move right into our quick hits. Uh, so Kevin, patient presents with a dominant breast mass. What's the next step? Imaging, bilateral mammography, and consider ultrasound depending on the age of the patient. Yep, imaging. So that's a common question. You have a breast mass. They'll they'll want to they'll want you to do some kind of biopsy, take it to the OR, back up, slow down, get get some imaging, and again. Younger women under 35, it's going to be ultrasound. Uh, over 35, it's going to be bilateral uh, mammography. Okay, Wu, concerning lesion on mammography, the core needle biopsy returns normal. What's your next step? Yeah, so think discordant findings, and so go on to do an excisional biopsy. Right, exactly. Uh, Kevin, uh, what are the most common sites for breast cancer metastasis? So it's the bone, lung, brain, and liver. Um, what about, so let's say... Um, you get, uh, you have a lesion and it's 0.1 millimeter. 
yeah, of tumor isolated, cell deposits. Yeah, isolated tumor cell deposits are not considered uh, metastatic disease. Right. So that's not M1 disease. Those isolated tumor deposits of less than 0.2 millimeters. Um, okay, BRCA1 and BRCA2, we talked about it. So uh, what are your... What other cancers are those patients at risk for, and what is the cumulative risk of those cancers, Wu? Yeah, so that's breast and ovarian. So for BRCA1, it's roughly 65% breast. For ovary, is 40%. For BRCA2, it's 45% for breast and 10% for ovary. Right, so BRCA1 has a higher um, risk of ovarian cancer, 40%. BRCA2, uh, a little bit lower risk of breast cancer, um, a little bit lower risk of uh, ovary cancer. BRCA1 is first at everything. It, it's at the highest risk of breast cancer and the highest risk of there you go. cancer. Uh, what are the side effects of tamoxifen, Kevin? So very common question, thromboembolism, uh, DVT, PE, and then uh, there is a risk of uterine cancer. Okay. And Wu, uh, we talked about uh, bone being a common, uh, a common metastasis for breast cancer. Why is that? Yeah, that's because of Batson's plexus. That's a valveless venous system uh, that allows direct metastasis to the bone. Okay, Kevin, you have a patient that's referred to you that has a tender palpable cord on the outer quadrant of the breast. What is it and how do you treat it? Uh, so likely this is Mondor's disease. Uh, so it could be uh, superficial thrombophlebitis is the clinical name for it. Uh, the treatment would be NSAIDs. That being said, you want to make sure uh, that these patients you know, if they're at the appropriate age, uh, that they should be undergoing mammography screening. They should have all of that um, in order to to make sure that there's no underlying malignancy. Sure. And Kevin, I'm going to stick with you on this one since you're a resident vascular expert. So you have a patient who has chronic lymphedema for 10 years following an axillary dissection and now presents with a dark purple lesion on the upper arm. What is it? So this is a lymphangiosarcoma uh, called Stewart-Trev's syndrome. And uh, this is a very serious lesion that needs urgent surgery. Yep. Stuart Treves or Treves, Treves syndrome. I'm not sure. Uh, lymphangiosarcoma. So, okay. Then that wraps it up. That... And, and that is a good one. Another picture question. So yeah, absolutely. Go Google that and look at the pictures. Lymphangiosarcoma or Stuart Treves syndrome. Look that one up. Uh, that does it. That's a review of breast for the AbSite and the general surgery boards. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 AbSite. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.